0: Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Have you changed the world this week? No, me neither. Oh well, despite that, thank you for joining me today as we return to Scotland to look at a strange story featuring a mysterious disappearance from the workplace. But before we begin, a big thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's David Smith and Anita Mitchell. I hope you all enjoy bonus episode 30, which was released this week, and the other 29, of course. And thank you to all of you who contacted me to say nice things about my article at UKTrueCrime.com about my friend who was killed in Brazil. So let's start today by setting some context for the events we're going to talk about, which centred around the 4th of May 2010. In the UK music charts, Good Time by Roll Deep was in the top spot, Keeping Usher and Will I Am from the number one position with OMG. In the US charts it was B.O.B. Bob something featuring Bruno Mars with Nothing On You. And in the Australian album charts top seller this week was The Bieber with My Worlds replacing Lady Gaga with Fame Monster. Incredibly this was the month that David Cameron became Prime Minister. In New York the last piece of the Yankee Stadium fell in the Bronx marking the end of the two-year demolition process. Chelsea beat Portsmouth in the FA Cup final with a goal from Didier Drogba. Although as someone who follows the mighty league United, Chelsea aren't a team I have any fondness at all for. It was hard not to have a grudging respect for Drogba, I think. Chelsea completed the double with an 8-0 victory over Wigan in the final game of the season. In the 55th Eurovision Song Contest, Lena for Germany won singing Satellite in Oslo. No, me neither. And 16-year-old Australian sailor Jessica Watson became the youngest sailor to circumnavigate the globe. An incredible achievement. And in UK true crime news, Stephen Timms, Labour MP and former Treasury Minister, was wounded in a stabbing in his East Ham constituency. A woman was later arrested for attempted murder. Stephen Griffiths, the so-called crossbow cannibal, was arrested for the murder of three sex workers in Bradford. And shy and retiring Lib Dem MP David Laws resigned as Chief Secretary to the Treasury after admitting he had claimed expenses to pay rent to his partner. Incredibly, and please explain to me if you know why this was the case, he did not face any criminal charges for this act. Scotland's capital, Edinburgh, is a stunningly beautiful city with a population approaching 500,000. Although that population is about to rocket with the Edinburgh Festival kicking off shortly. Suzanne Pilly was a 38-year-old bookkeeper from Edinburgh. On Tuesday the 4th of May 2010, she was feeling happy with the world. As her new relationship with Mark Brooks was going well, they just spent the night together. Like so many city workers, she had a routine that she stuck to. And that morning, like every other, she took the bus into the city to her job in finance at Infrastructure Managers Limited, IML, in Thistle Street. She popped into Sainsbury's to buy a sandwich and a bottle of water and CCTV recorded her leave at 8.51am and she turned into the street where she worked. But Suzanne didn't make it to her desk and she's not been seen since. Her colleagues were immediately worried. If she thought she was going to be late, Suzanne would let them know. She was very close to her parents and spoke to them daily and it was they who called police later that afternoon to report their daughter as missing. At first it was a standard missing person case, but the police quickly ruled out the possibility that she disappeared of her own free will after establishing that no belongings were missing from her home. She left her money, medication and her passport at home, had made no arrangements to care for her precious cat and her pet fish, and she had used none of her credit cards or her bank account. So quickly, a routine missing person inquiry transformed into a murder investigation. Detectives tried to identify where Suzanne could have come to harm. Her work was a four-storey building with three office floors, open plan, with 30 offices on each floor. The ground floor was for car parking. Nobody had actually seen Suzanne in the office, so they quickly began working into the theory that Suzanne had never actually made it into her office. Something must have happened to her in the car park below, But what? And why? And by whom? From their initial conversations and interviews, it appeared that Suzanne was popular, happy and had no enemies. But one name did keep coming up and this was David Gilroy who worked for the same company as Suzanne. Friends told detectives that David Gilroy, who was married with children, had been having an affair with Suzanne and he was possessive and jealous. Police phoned him on his mobile the day after Suzanne was reported missing and he told them that he was further north in Argyll on business. He returned to Edinburgh late that night and gave a statement to officers. He told police he had no idea why Suzanne could be missing, and he'd never tried to contact her to find out. He was very cool, calm, collected and helpful, as he was interviewed as a witness for 11 hours and gave a 59-page statement to officers. He told how the pair had first met just over a year earlier, at the end of April 2009, over drinks at a leaving do for a colleague at a bar in Thistle Street. He said, I got speaking to her and she ended up telling me the history of her life. Gilroy said Suzanne confided that she had married a man who was more like a friend, but she didn't fancy him and the marriage ended quickly. He said she later went on a three-month trip to Morocco, and when she was there she met someone who she felt was a real soulmate, but he was too young, and so she left him and returned to Scotland. She had then become engaged again in a whirlwind romance to a local man, but when she discovered the size of his... cocaine habit, she ended that relationship too. She told him of another relationship where she had suffered domestic abuse including physical attacks. Gilroy liked Suzanne straight away, and they'd gone home together that night, but nothing sexual occurred. He said it was a month later, at the end of May, when we began a sexual relationship. I would say that Suzanne was the initiator. She made it clear that she was interested in me. Despite being a married man with children, Gilroy was unable to resist, and the affair began with Gilroy spending two or three nights a week at Suzanne's flat, telling his wife Andrea that he was working. But then Andrea found out. She was furious with her husband's betrayal and initially wanted a separation or divorce and he moved out. But as the hurt subsided, she did that thing that partners often do in these situations and looked for every piece of information she could about the affair. When she found Suzanne's number on his phone that August, she called her to say leave my husband alone. But Gilroy said how Suzanne still wanted him saying She wanted me to make a full commitment to her and to live there permanently. I said I need to keep contact with my kids. Andrea would not let the children visit Suzanne's flat. But Suzanne said she did not want to play second fiddle. And being the somewhat weak man he was, Gilroy continued to string both women along. By the time Christmas 2009 arrived, Gilroy was heading to a key time when he had to make some decisions. He even said it was clear to me that I had a major decision to make, but even on Christmas Day he couldn't decide what to do. In the end he stayed with his family, but after a disagreement with his wife at 7pm that night, he went to Suzanne, but then he made an excuse to leave to visit his mum, and he returned to his family home. And although he moved back in January 2010 to the house he shared with his wife and children, His decisiveness continued to desert him over the next few months as according to Gilroy his relationship with Suzanne was still ongoing but infrequent, including an infrequent sexual relationship. He told how those close to Suzanne had urged her to end the relationship as he had too much baggage and spending time with him was just wasting her life when she could be meeting other people. Suzanne eventually took this advice and through internet dating she met council planning worker Mark Brooks and we heard at the beginning of the podcast just how well things seemed to be going between them. But even so, Gilroy couldn't quite let go. He said, About six weeks ago was the last time we had sex together. We only had sex between four and six times since January. I'd encouraged her to meet other guys. I always said that if she had a chance for a family, she should take it. Suzanne told me she had a termination when she was young and she always thought that never having children was her punishment. I was pleased that she was meeting people. I wasn't jealous at all. He continued they'd last met around 10 days before her disappearance when she told him about meeting Mark and also issues she was suffering at work following her failure to gain promotion where her bosses had said that she was moody in response to this and even suggested she saw a doctor. Then the weekend before her disappearance, Gilroy said he'd received text messages from Suzanne, who told him she was going out drinking with friends in Prince's Street Gardens and to see whether he fancied joining them. They later spoke on the phone when he didn't think she seemed herself. He later texted her saying, "I hope things are going well. It'll be pretty in the gardens." To which she responded at 9:30 to say, "Yeah, I'm okay. Out with friends." Gilroy sent another message that said, "Oh." have fun with your friends and she replied, just leave it, I'll call you tomorrow. And the following day Gilroy said that Suzanne texted him again but it was a rather odd text which read, have a happy life and they later spoke at around midday when she said i had let her down and led her round the garden path and had no intention of committing. I tried to tell her I'd not let her on. I asked if I could go round and speak to her She agreed and he later drove to her flat to collect some belongings when she admitted that she had lied and been on a date with Mark the previous evening. Gilroy continued, She said that because I still love you, you're going to blow my chances with that guy. And the pair went out for a walk for a while and sat at their special tree where he suggested writing out the things that were wrong with our lives on bits of paper and then burning them because that's what the Buddhists do. I'd written that I was sorry I couldn't commit to her and sorry that I couldn't leave my children and that I would always love her. She read it and said she felt I was her soulmate and the one. According to Gilroy, he stayed the night at Suzanne's flat and they shared a bed but did not have sex. The next morning, Monday, the day before she disappeared, Suzanne was, according to Gilroy, in a bit of a mood and they argued. And later that day, Suzanne texted to say, You're a game player. You were always going to go back to your wife and now you've ruined my chances with this guy. I told her it was never my intention. I sent her a text which said, I'll love you always. It was the last text I sent to her. And Gilroy bought flowers for his wife that day and when he went home they had a good conversation and later slept in the same bed for the first time in a year. He told police, I've had no further communication with Suzanne. I have no idea where she is. I have no idea why she's gone missing. But officers noticed cuts on his hands, and Gilroy was asked to attend a forensic medical examination the next day. Detectives suspected that he was covering the cuts with a flesh coloured substance, possibly makeup. Did this indicate that he'd harmed Suzanne and got these injuries when she was fighting back? It was certainly the turning point for detectives, and Gilroy was very much now the prime suspect. A pathologist indicated that these injuries were typical of the injuries made by a victim of strangulation, trying to remove their assailant's hands. But the difficulty was that the explanation could have been much more straightforward and could have come just from gardening, as Gilroy insisted, to officers. Detectives looked much more closely at his movements on the day that Suzanne went missing. He said he was given a lift by his wife and after stopping to drop his daughter off at school, He took a bus to the West End and then walked to Thistle Street, arriving at his office at 8.25am. After working and chatting to colleagues, he said he spoke to a receptionist about repair issues in the office garage and the plant room. He said that later that day he returned home to pick up some notes and returned in his car. And Gilroy then went out about 1.30pm buying deodorant, an air freshener, at Superdrug in Princes Street before putting them in his car at the office garage. He said he left the office at 4.50pm. It was the next day when he heard about Suzanne's disappearance from his boss and he said, I was dazed, the news came completely out of the blue. He said the next day he went to inspect pitches at a school in Argyle and missed calls from his boss and police. When he did speak to police, he agreed to give a statement, which he did much later that evening, approaching midnight. He added, at no point did I try to contact Suzanne Pilly. But work colleagues said that Gilroy wasn't himself at all on the morning that Suzanne went missing. They felt he was late, arriving at the office more like 9.25. And for a man known for being extremely self-controlled, that morning he was perceived as looking agitated, shaking and in shock. He then brought forward the meeting in Argyll from two days later to the following day, was this so? Easy the chance to dump the body, wondered detectives. On the eleventh of May two thousand and ten, almost a week after Suzanne's disappearance, Lothian and Borders Police initiated a huge public appeal for information, including large digital screens that sat in the centre of Edinburgh, playing footage of Suzanne's last known movements. In the meantime, they were examining in minute detail Gilroy's movements in Argyll. The public had reported a car just like his was seen driving around the wilds of Argyle on remote and very bumpy roads. Examination of his car showed vegetation on the bottom and all four springs were broken, the first time that the forensic expert doing the examination had seen this on a 30-year career. So it certainly looked as though he'd been spending a lot of time off-road and detectives were by now convinced that this was to dump Suzanne's body. Two dogs from Yorkshire were brought in to smell for human remains and worked together to give corroboration of their evidence. They went through the entire work building and only showed two positives. One on a concealed stairwell in the car park, the other beside a door. This was a door that needed to be opened with two hands so anybody wanting to leave had to put down anything they were carrying. So detectives believed that Gilroy and Suzanne had met on the stairwell on the day she went missing. They'd argued Gilroy had killed her there, left her body, and continued with his day. He went home to get his car, he bought air fresheners to put in his car, brought his Argyle trip forward, and later reversed his car to the garage door and placed Suzanne's body in the boot. The dogs also tested positive in his car boot, but although the overpowering smell of air fresheners was found there, none of Suzanne's DNA was recovered. Gilroy returned home that night and spent the evening with his family, potentially knowing all the time that Suzanne's body was in the boot of his car. The next day he headed north to check on a school his firm was overseeing, but he didn't take a direct route and instead headed much further north than he needed to. Detectives were certain he had detoured along the A83 to somewhere near the beauty spot Rest and Be Thankful with enough time to dispose of Suzanne's body. And however many times they drove the same journey from Edinburgh to Inverness, 124 miles and two hours of Gilroy's time were unaccounted for. Gilroy couldn't provide an explanation, and they had the facts there based on his fuel consumption. A targeted, intensive search was carried out over rough terrain, but Suzanne's body couldn't be found. Detectives examined what were Gilroy's motives for killing Suzanne. Was it jealousy that she'd met another man? A search of devices backed up this theory and showed that Gilroy was a very intense, possessive and sometimes violent man. As well as showing some violence towards Suzanne, detectives also found he was abusive to his wife and children, even making threats to kill his wife Andrea and detectives considered pressing charges for these offences. Suzanne had told friends she had suspected that Gilroy was hacking into her computer and reading her emails, especially around her activity on dating sites. And it wasn't unusual for Gilroy to text Suzanne over 50 times a day. But on the 4th of May, the day she went missing, they stopped abruptly, despite him claiming he did not know about Suzanne's disappearance until the following day. And Suzanne's phone, on which she had texted her dad, just before arriving at work, has never been found. Although there was no body and the evidence was purely circumstantial, detectives believed they had enough to secure a conviction. And on the 23rd of June 2010, David Gilroy was detained by Lothian Borders Police under Section 14 of the Criminal Procedure Act 1995 in connection with her disappearance. Later that day he was arrested and charged with her murder. And following his trial... On the afternoon of the 13th of March 2012, the jury of eight men and seven women were sent out to consider their verdict. After two and a half days of deliberations, on the 15th of March 2012, David Gilway was found guilty by a majority verdict of the murder of Suzanne Pilly and of attempting to defeat the ends of justice. He was sentenced to life in prison. As the jury read out its verdict... Gilroy, described in court as controlling, possessive, stared stonily ahead, while Suzanne's mum began crying. As he was led away to the cells, he nodded to certain members of the public gallery, including his loyal wife Andrea, who had stuck with him, believing in his innocence. In a statement after his conviction, Suzanne's mum and dad, Sylvia and Rob, said, This day has been a long time coming, but finally Suzanne has received the justice she deserved. As a family, we continue to struggle to come to terms of losing her. We've lost our daughter, but her memory lives on in everyone who knew her. She was a devoted daughter, a supportive friend, and an exemplary colleague at work. She was a proud Scot who led a full and active life and enjoyed the great outdoors, always walking, cycling, and keeping fit. And although the trial has ended, our ordeal goes on, and we hope that one day we can lay our daughter to rest. If we forward wind to today, Suzanne's body has still yet to be found. A number of times her family have gone through the hell of being informed of discoveries of other human remains in the region, but none of which turned out to be Suzanne. And so their agony continues. In an interview in 2018, Suzanne's family told of their heartbreak and not being able to give Suzanne a funeral. Her sister Gail said, Every time she's mentioned... You struggle with the fact she's not been found. It's hard to think about because we just don't know where she is and that's the first thought that comes into your head when she's mentioned. It's just, where are you? So it's just extremely difficult to not know where she is and to not have laid her to rest. She wasn't treated with any dignity in her death. She was discarded and we do not know where she is. And that is just sometimes unbearable. But we have to move forward And I would just love to be able to give her that funeral, that dignity that every person deserves. But unfortunately, we can't do that. Her mum Sylvia has made repeated requests for information about the whereabouts of her daughter's body. She said, I feel, and my husband feels, that it's as if she didn't matter and she's gone, and we can't do anything about it. So we have to rely on the public if they're out and about in that area. Maybe dog walkers and we're very fortunate with the forestry workers who've been very good. Any position that looks as if it's been disturbed, they notify the police, and we're very grateful for that because we hope that one day she'll be found. Detective Superintendent Stuart Houston is continuing to lead the inquiry and also urged anyone with information to come forward, he said. Suzanne's family have been dignified and composed throughout their ordeal, and whilst I've been involved in many difficult and traumatic cases – I cannot begin to comprehend how they must feel every day, not knowing where their daughter and sister is. My thoughts go out to them and their bravery in agreeing to speak so that we can try to get them the answers they deserve. Considerable searches have been carried out in Argyle, but they have sadly turned up nothing. Whilst David Gilroy continues to maintain he is innocent, the only avenue left open at this time is a new piece of information for a member of the public. The gaps in Gilroy's journey and the foliage and debris on his car, tell us he went off road somewhere near to the rest and be thankful, so anyone who was in that area on May 5th 2010 and could have seen or heard anything that might be the missing link in our investigation, please contact us. Equally, I would appeal to anyone who may be walking or camping in the Argyle Forest and may notice anything unusual. Any calls we receive will be followed up appropriately, and Suzanne's family have seen justice done, but now we need to bring her home so she can be laid to rest. As for rugby-mad Gilroy, he has continued to appeal his case, insisting he is innocent. He asked for his case to be considered by the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission, claiming he had suffered a miscarriage of justice. They disagreed. He also failed in a bid to have his case looked at by the UK Supreme Court. As of today... July 2019, he remains behind bars and it seems that's where he's likely to stay. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Do you have any doubts about David Gilroy's guilt? And poor Suzanne, just when she was finally breaking free of this destructive relationship, she was murdered in such a terrible way and seemingly dumped in a remote area far away from her friends and family yet another case and we hear it so often on this podcast where the murderer can't let the family have the basic dignity of laying their loved one to rest thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime weekly podcast to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime please head to the Facebook group there's over 2,800 of us you'll be very welcome and to allow me to keep producing this free weekly content please support the show at Patreon dot com slash UK true crime where you will find 34 length bonus episodes and other exclusive content so that's all for me for today I know I know but I have to leave you wanting more right right well sort of anyway so I'm off to see a man about a dog so until next week cheerio and remember stay classy